Why Should Women Care About Economic Freedom? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sarah Squire. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Sarah Squire. Sarah is a senior fellow and senior web editor at Liberty Fund, a nonprofit educational foundation, and works on a pretty great Liberty Fund project called Adam Smith Works, a website that makes learning about Adam Smith accessible to educators, students, and everyone else. She's also the co-author of the college writing textbook, Writing with a Thesis, which is in its 12th edition. She has published a range of academic articles on subjects from Shakespeare to zombies and the broken window fallacy. Her work on literature and economics has also appeared in Newsweek, The Freeman, and Cato Unbound, and she is an occasional lecturer for many organizations. Her poetry has appeared, among other places, in Standpoint, The New Criterion, and The Vocabular Review. She graduated with honors in English from Wesleyan University and earned an MA and PhD in English from the University of Chicago. Sarah, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So in each episode, we ask a question and then just go wherever the answers take us. So let's kick it right off. Why should women care about economic freedom? Um, everybody should care about economic freedom. Um, is that? I mean, that's the short answer and podcast over, right? Women should care because they're people and all people should care. But we can, um, I think we can poke at that a little bit harder. Um, one of the messages that I think that women are often given is that our primary problems are more in the nature of day-to-day sexism, right? Uh, And I don't want to downplay those. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been spending a great deal of time lately mentoring a young woman who's been undergoing some sexual harassment issues with with her work. So I I don't want to underplay the extreme seriousness of those considerations as well. But, uh, you know, getting catcalled on the bus, getting uh, pinched at a party, you know, smaller sort of day-to-day issues of sexism are often sort of pointed to in our media, in our culture, in the messaging that we give our uh, our young women um, in school and as they're they're growing up and the things we warn our daughters about, right? That tends to be the, where our focus is. One of the things that we don't talk about often enough to women at all ages is how economic independence, how personal economic responsibility, how economic viability, how economic power can be a way for women to climb out of terrible situations, to guard themselves against bad situations that they might get in, and frankly, a weapon with which one can fight back against ordinary day-to-day everyday sexism. Right. And and actually, I'm glad you let off that way because one of my first notes I want to talk to you about is, is your terminology. In one of the articles you wrote called How the State Became the American Woman's Real Enemy, you termed what you were just talking about as, as sort of like the monster of the weak sexism. This this idea right. that, that we should be looking at the real enemy as the state. That was at least the point of that article for sure. Yeah. So the first article that I wrote after I finished my dissertation. So I finished my dissertation and I shoved it into a drawer and couldn't look at it again for like a year (laughs) because you spend a lot of time with that sucker and I was kind of over it. Right. The first article that I wrote could not have been less related to my dissertation if I tried. Um, It was about uh, fairy tales and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, of which I am an enormous fan. Um, And one of the things that Buffy fans talk a lot about a lot 
is that Buffy uh, paid attention to individual monsters of the week, right? There was always the particular demon you were fighting in every episode. But then there was kind of the long arc, big bad for a whole season or indeed stretched over several seasons Mm -hmm. that, you know, Buffy and her team were fighting against. And so when I talk about kind of the, you know, the, the monster of the week, Kind of sexism. That's the the smart ass remarks in in the street. That's that's cat calling. That's the sort of day to day pain in the neck stuff that comes with being a woman in in a culture, right? And it's again not downplaying that. I don't. I feel like you guys are going to get letters. I'm not downplaying that. I think right. it's very very significant. But I think that um, economic inequality is one of the really long arc big bads that we need to worry about if we're really worried about changing the status of women, not only in the West, but around the world. And, and when it comes to the state as well, as one of the the major players in the situation, as we'll see in a sec, uh, but, but you ultimately say as well that there's another thing we have to talk about too before we even get into some specifics, which is the subtle language about rights being given by government uh, and why this is something we should really take note of before we any, go any further, basically. Uh, it, it seems to push people to the idea that people are not equal until they're made equal. And you've written about this as well. So let's go into that a bit too. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I'm not... Um... My training is in English literature. My training is not in rights theory. I am not a political philosopher. Are there enough disclaimers in front of this conversation? (laughs) I feel like I need a great big sticker. (laughs) Not a rights theorist. Um, But one of the things that people who work on literature tend to be interested in is the way that we talk about things that we think are important. The words that we use, the the structures of the language that we use to talk about things that we think are important. I think rights are enormously important. And I think it is equally enormously important how we talk about where rights come from. So I think that, for example, when we say women were given the, American women were given the right to vote in 1920. Right. I forget the date uh, when uh, women in Canada um, had their right to vote recognized by the state. And that's the distinction that I want to make. I, let's, so let me backtrack on that. All right. We cut here and, and go back to that. One of the things that I think is enormously important is the way that we talk about where rights come from. Right? So when we say that the American government gave women the right to vote in 1920, The implication of structuring the sentence that way is that government owns the right to vote and hands it out as a privilege to the people whom it thinks should have it. Making voting just a a distribution issue, basically. Oh, right. It's a, you know, it's another thing that you get from the government. Right. Right. Like a, like a tax refund or, uh, water or whatever else, roads, um, whatever else we might get from the government. If we say in 1920, the U.S. government recognized women's right to vote, that vote, wherever we think it comes from, whether it comes from God, whether it comes from natural rights, whether it comes from standing as a citizen, whether it comes from the mere fact of being human, wherever we think it comes from, it didn't come from the government. Right. We had it, and the government said, we have been denying you that right, and now we recognize that you have that right. So that's a a discussion on 
what the government is giving, like that language is dangerous. But then in uh, one of your uh, articles and essays, which I'll, I'll read the title now because we're going to discuss a bit more about it. This was called Without Respect of Persons, Gender Equality, Theology and the Law and the Writing of Margaret Fell. So we'll talk a bit more about that in a sec. But you bring up the idea in there as well that on top of the discussion about government's giving rights, that actually distracts us from the discussion of what the government takes as well, if there's too much to emphasis on giving. I found that very interesting point too. Right. If you if you if you structure things like the right to vote, the right to bear arms, the right to um whatever uh healthcare, education, clean water, uh whatever else uh people are structuring as rights. If you structure all of these things or any list of things, however you want that content of that list to look, you structure that as things that are in gift from the government, right? You're thinking about, oh, look at that big pile of stuff that I get, and you don't look at what are they, what are they taking away? Mm-hmm. Right? What are they saying that that what are they saying that I can't have? Who doesn't get what I get? Or by getting what I get, what am I not, you know, what what alternatives are being taken away? Well, one way of looking at it is that, um, you know, the conversation about women getting the right to vote starts too late for them to be not able to vote to begin with. By default, it had been taken away. Right. And especially in the United States, women in many of the, the territories before the territories became recognized as states, um, women voted in the territories quite often because the territories needed to have a certain number of voting citizens in order to become admitted to the union. So therefore, uh, women are voting citizens in order to get the state in. And then lo and behold. Yeah. And the Canadian version of that as well as the during uh, World War One, I, I believe it was. And if I screwed up this fact, it will put in the episode notes for everybody saying Alex is wrong. But um, but basically, the <laughs> idea was that uh, when a lot of the men were, of course, off fighting the war, someone was like, well, how, how do we get people to vote for the incumbent party? Well, people are are over there. Well, if we give women the right to vote in this case, then they will hopefully vote for the incumbent party. So that another thing, right? I, Unfortunately, did they then just like remove it post-war? Uh, I actually forget that. We'll put in the episode notes. I forget if that was then uh, okay. Then women had the right to vote there. If it was, or if it was one of those things where um, you could vote on behalf of the man because he was gone. Like I'd have to oh. look into the. But it was a very interesting story at that point. Yeah. Actually, I mean, it's very difficult to let that kind of genie out of the bottle and shove it back. Right. In again. Yes. Which is which is one of the interesting things that happens with all sorts of questions about women when uh, when the culture goes to war, right? Um, and not a big fan of war, but one of the things that happens uh, during war is that different kinds of opportunities open up for uh, politically and economically uh, disenfranchised individuals. Right. Like women, like minorities. That's, that's an interesting... Uh, that's an interesting extra piece of information to add on to my pile of thinking about. That. And here's the, the proper facts uh, right from straight from the producer. Uh, <laughs> on January 28th, 1916, Manitoba became the first province of Canada to extend the franchise to women voters. So that's provincial. Um, it was not until 1940 that Quebec women won the right to vote in provincial elections. In 1960, First Nations were allowed to vote without giving up treaty rights, which is, again, definitely more implications for women as well. Uh, and in between that, other provinces did too, but Quebec was the last, so there's a bit of a timeline there. Uh, so women did have the right to vote in the 1921 federal election, uh, okay. but that didn't mean all women in Canada. If, so lots of complications right. there. And and you know that does bring up the point that this stuff is a little more recent. 
than sometimes we think it is in our day-to-day lives. We're all talking about, yeah, 2020. But if you really look at the timelines we're talking about, some people go, well, it's 100 years ago. But that, that's not many generations to be removed from. You, Some of us could have been born at a time where, you know, the some of your colleagues as women just didn't have the right to vote. Like that's a, that's a crazy thought. It's an unacceptable thought. Uh, but, but I mean, that, that's the fact. This isn't actually that yeah. far off in memory. And one of the, one of the interesting and frequently extremely depressing things about looking into some of this is how recent it all is. Um, my, I was born in 1971. Okay. I'm 49. It's not ancient, Right. You know, uh, but it's decidedly middle aged, but it's not ancient quite yet. Right. But 1971, not really all that long ago. We think of that as being, you know, the modern era. People had cars. There wasn't Internet or cable, but there were like cars and computers and stuff like that. My mom, who was a school teacher, had to quit her job when she became pregnant with her kids because you were not allowed to teach school if you were a visibly pregnant woman Hmm. in the seventies in Cleveland. Wow. And pretty much most places. So if you you look pregnant, no dice out of there. Somehow, I guess they thought the kids would ask inappropriate questions or it would be like immoral to expose them to a respectable married pregnant lady. I don't know what the thinking was, but you could not teach um, if you were visibly pregnant. And so she had to quit her job. Uh, In 1971, my mom would not have been able to get a mortgage on her own. And I believe that my dad had to still co-sign for her credit cards. Unbelievable. Yeah, to emphasize for everyone listening, that's not 1812 we're talking about here. That's that's 1971. Right. Right. I mean, that's, it's unthinkable. I love that it is unthinkable. Women today, the notion that they wouldn't be able to get a mortgage on their own because of gender, right. right? The notion that they wouldn't be able to get their own credit cards without a co-signer, it horrifies them and it should. Um, and it should be all the more horrifying that it was incredibly recently the case that that, that wasn't true. Right. I mean, it, exactly. As you said, it's great that it's in the rearview mirror, but nevertheless, it's in the rearview mirror. It's not ancient history right. you can't see anymore, right? Right. It's not in the stone tablets yet. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and actually, that, that provides a great thread into one other thing I want to talk to you about. Back to that one article you had written, I'll read again, how the state became the American woman's real enemy. Um, This is, again, back into some 1900s state labor history and regulations. I'll, I'll read a quote here. It's a little long because so and I typically actually don't do this, but I, I thought that this deserved to be read. So I have a separate sheet of paper here. People can hear that ASMR, I guess. Um, But uh, (laughs) but 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 this is what it says. So in your article, you wrote in 1903, the state of Oregon passed a law forbidding female employees of laundry services, factories and mechanical manufacturers from working more than 10 hours a day. Um, And then this ultimately went on to the Supreme Court nine to zero decision. The court decided that the law was constitutional, saying, "Okay." The physical well-being of of woman is an object of public interest. The regulation of her hour of labor falls within the police protective power of the state, they went on to say, and it is not effective by other laws of the state granting or denying to women the same rights as to contract and the elective franchise as are enjoyed by men. They also went on to say, The woman's physical structure and the performance of maternal functions place her at a disadvantage in the struggle for subsistence. This is especially true when the burdens of motherhood are upon her. 
even when they are not (laughs) by abundant testimony of the medical fraternity continuance for a long time on her feet at work repeating this from day to day tends to injurious effects upon her body and as healthy mothers are essential to vigorous offspring the physical well-being of women becomes an object of public interest and care in order to preserve the strength and vigor of the race you know, I don't say it's often in the podcast, but what the fuck? Um, maybe, <laughs> as you said, you you yourself, of course, were not bo- there in 1903, but you've read about this and, and you've, you you immersed yourself in all this information. Take us back a little more into that mentality and what's going on here. There's a lot of key words for serious discussion about this being within the public interest, the human race, uh, you know, within the state power to regulate what women are doing. And also you noted that, uh, and maybe we can get to this as sort of a, set discussion of this point, but you also noted noted that this was uh, conveniently not regulating things like house labor, of course, just women going out to work. So over to you. Take us through all that. Yeah, I mean, that's that last point is actually my favorite thing about the well favorite. <laughs> One of the really fun things about the, the hyper regulation of, of women's work in the turn of the century. They kept making these excuses that women's frail physical bodies were not capable or or should not be expected to sustain the hard physical labor required by factory work, by heavy cleaning, um, by this work outside the home, by, in this case, by heavy work in laundries, right? It's very, very damaging for women's health and well-being. Um, nobody's worried about women taking care of six children at home and doing laundry and doing cooking and doing cleaning and carrying children around all day and lifting them up and carrying them up and down uh, all of the flights involved in a four-story walk-up apartment. Uh, But if you go out to work to do other people's laundry, we have to be very careful to make sure (laughs) that you're not working too hard. Then it's the government's business. Then you present a problem and you must be regulated. Problem to the, to the race. This the is serious business. The whole human race too, right. right? Because it's not just it's not just your children. It's the children of humanity as a whole. And it's it's got nasty touches of eugenics in it, in addition to the heap and helping of sexism. Um, and it's, it's just odious all of the way down. Right. And on that eugenics point too, like really quick digression, it's important for people to remember that I understand that a lot of post-World War II history is set in this good and evil thing, uh, but in, in, the, in the sense that, you know, people thought, oh, well, of course, you know, the the, the allies, they always knew what was, what was great. There was no lead up to, to fascist thought in those countries. Well, you know, if you take a look about eugenics and all these types of sort of fascistic attitudes towards things like they were, they weren't necessarily completely unpopular in all crowds uh, before World War II, uh, you know, so that, so as you said, there's a bit of a flavor of that in there. Um, and, and that's, that's a hundred percent true too. So the world was a very interesting place, not only for sexism, but lots of other mentalities talking about the, the human race and things like that. So, so it sounds like creepy stuff in there, but, but that's the way it was. Right. And so, so what this means then is that women who at the time were generally less well-educated and had uh, many fewer skills to bring into the labor market were systematically, doors were being systematically shut by the courts, uh, by the unions, by employers for the work that they were able to do, right? If your skill is doing laundry, right? And you can't read, uh, you can't write, or you can't do either very well, you don't have great math. And suddenly 
your hours that you're able to work doing laundry are cut, you can no longer provide for your family. Right. right? Same as your office cleaners were heavy, heavily regulated, particularly uh, women who cleaned offices at night. It was okay, apparently, if they cleaned offices during the day. It was fine if they cleaned their own homes at any time of day or night. But cleaning an office building after dark, right out, completely unacceptable, had to be regulated. And in the further discussion, that article about labor regulations and things, I actually didn't grab the, the quote here, but I think it's it's close to it. This I there was this idea in general, whether it had to do with women or or minorities or other kinds of workers, you know, we're, we're keeping the white male quote, you know, out of competition with other people. That that was what a lot of this was based on. And again, back to what we we're talking about at the very beginning, which is the state as a focus in this discussion, as opposed to some of the monsters of the week. Again, here's a situation where there's a certain group of people leveraging the mechanisms of the state for a variety of reasons to prevent other people, in this case, women in a very serious way, from from competing. That's really what this came down to. And of course, right. as you said, there's all that other stuff sprinkled in there, patriarchy stuff with probably a need for control. But 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 right down to the core of it, it's the idea of keeping people out of competition with the, the incumbent power, in that case, men in the workforce. Absolutely. And court cases are explicit about it. There's no they're people. They're not trying to hide it. They're not ashamed of it. And in that same article, and I'm sorry, I am because we are all sort of displaced because of um, COVID. I'm at my house and I'm not in my office. And so I don't have all my things. So I can't check my quotes uh, for you and get them exactly right. But there's a court case where uh, the the judgment says something along the lines of no man should have to compete with his own wife for a job. Right. I remember this. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's just very simple. Right. We want the goal is traditional nuclear family. Husband works. Wife stays home and takes care of the children. Right. That means the husband's salary must be a man must be able to earn a living wage. A man must be able to earn a living wage. Right. In order for that to happen, there can't be a lot of competition in the labor market from people who are willing to sell their labor more cheaply. The reason they're willing to sell their labor more cheaply is because they don't have a lot of alternatives, right? Women with less education, with different demands on their time, right? Immigrant labor who may have difficulty getting hired for whatever they did in their home countries or maybe bringing a, a, a desperately trying to catch up uh, on a different skill set um, in the ter- turn of the century. Maybe they're moving from a very non-industrialized part of the world to the industrialized US and trying to learn those factory skills, you have to keep them out of the labor market if what you're concerned about is protecting the right of the white man to earn a living wage. And we're talking about competition in, in one sense, which is the economic sense. As you said, if someone's trying to you know, uh, apply for your job, let's say, as a cleaner or factory worker, that, that's one sense. But obviously, when we talk about the dynamics of a household and the idea of preserving this nuclear family ideal, um, men were also afraid of competition in another sense, which is like the, the in-home competition, right? If someone starts bringing in a certain set of income, all of a sudden they start being able to stand on that rightly as sort of a point of, well, here, maybe I can make some decisions about what we're doing with that income. And then that's also another thing that was at that time, again, casting our minds back to that mentality. Um, that's something that was definitely on, on the male mind as well, of course. And it has been recently as well with the 2008 recession. We started seeing a lot of articles come out that men were being harder hit by the recession in the labor market than women were. 
not quite sure what they determined the reasons were for that, but it did seem to be the case. And that meant that fairly rapidly, you had households undergoing a switch from a time when men were the primary earner for the household uh, and women's labor was secondary to all of a sudden the women in the family becoming the primary earners. Right. Right. And interesting things happen and change when you get a shift in in who's the primary earner. Right. One of those things is that the divorce rate tends to go up. Women make more money and the divorce rate tends to go up. You know, it goes down. What? Also murder. <laughs> we might leave you, but we won't kill you. <laughs> not if not if we can support ourselves when uh, when we leave. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite statistics. When uh, my husband, Steve Horwitz, who is an economist and I teach together or give lectures together, I always find ways to slip that little statistic in there. That as divorce rates, when you get no fault divorce, uh, the spousal murder rate declines um, because women can leave bad situations. Mm-hmm. This also it's also enabled by economic independence, right? You have to not just be able to legally leave a bad situation. You have to be able to take care of yourself and presumably your children when you do. And you did mention just a minute ago there too, like uh, we were talking about some some court cases and, and attitudes of the past um, and, and you know, the disproportionate effect on women when it comes to, to the economic sphere. And as you're saying, exactly, it's, it's not as if that we're, we're completely beyond that even, even today. Even if we don't have judges maybe writing opinions or lawmakers writing legislation with the commentary that we're trying to restrict women. And even if they don't intend to do that, back to the economic freedom discussion, you know, things can disproportionately affect women. Like, let, let's say there happens to be a field of expertise or, or or a profession where it's predominantly women. If that becomes overregulated, then you are, again, disproportionately affecting women. If uh, in general, maybe with the best of intentions, people want to regulate something like, I don't know, uh, hair braiding or, or styling, for example. For example. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, we can get into that discussion. But again, um, if we assume in many cases that the stylists and the and the people in this field are women, well, if we're over-regulating a certain area like that, what's happening? We're kind of back to the same place, but in a different way. Again, impeding on people's economic freedom. Right. And and this is, you know, occupational licensure is, is another very uh, heavyweight tool that the state can wield um, and that other interest groups can wield. Uh, in order to say who does and who does not get to compete in the labor market. You mentioned hair braiding, which is a great example. Um, Hair braiders, hairdressers, manicurists, um, estheticians of all kinds are very heavily regulated. In uh, many, many places, you need a lot more training to cut hair than you do to be an emergency medical tech. Um, That seems, I don't know, worthy of examination as to whether that's really warranted. (laughs) To put it one way. (laughs) Um, And there's the Institute for Justice, which is one of my favorite um, uh, classical liberal organizations um, and and works very hard um, fighting court cases in the U.S. on the side of uh, classical liberal values and and particularly on the side of economic liberty, did a very big study a couple of years ago about occupational licensure um, and maybe you guys can put that in the notes for the episode because I would encourage everybody to take a look at it. Um, they do only look at the American case, but I would expect that there are Canadian organizations that have done similar work um, on questions in Canada. What's interesting is I, I looked into occupational licensure suspecting that women's uh, labor would have more licensure requirements attached to it. That actually didn't turn out to be entirely true. Um, a lot of male labor um, 
particularly heavy construction, um, timber, uh, uh, work out on oil drills in the Arctic, that kind of thing. Very, very heavy uh, construction work tends to be extremely heavily licensed and regulated. You can understand from a safety perspective um, why that would be the case, right? Um, what's interesting is that when women's labor uh, is heavily licensed uh, and regulated, it's much, much harder to imagine what the case is for regulating those particular professions, such as hair braiders, hairdressers, uh, florists, uh, are very heavily regulated in particular places. Well, they're handling dangerous material. The, right. The, <laughs> the safety concerns don't seem to be the same as, you know, Atlantic oil drilling. I might be missing something, but I mean, and you know, a bad haircut is a definite concern as all of us locked in for two months <laughs> now can, can attest, right? But um, but it doesn't seem quite along the, the same uh, level as operating heavy machinery. And actually, you know, that's an excellent place to take a break. We're right at that time, actually a little over. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sarah Squire today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pagliarello, Sabine Elchidiak, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sarah Squire today. Sarah, before the break, um, we were talking a bit about uh, labor regulation, occupational licensing, things like that. Um, the difference between perhaps the safety concerns that you would see on doing Atlantic oil drilling versus uh, selling some roses, I guess. So that there's definitely, as you said, something to be looked at there. Um, there's something you wrote in one of your articles. I actually didn't note exactly which one it was, so maybe we'll put that in the episode notes. But I remember the discussion you're just having with me brought it up in my head is that in some ways... Uh, whether you're a woman or or a man, uh, the fact is you may be acting on what's called and something for people to keep in mind uh, the the get through the door and bar it principle. You 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 brought that up and and is I guess the question is is it possible that some women with the best of intentions in a certain field may feel that additional licensing and additional regulation, et cetera, et cetera, are the best idea. So these are good intentions, but ultimately, unbeknownst to them, they are in fact uh, impeding and harming. Uh, other women? Okay, this is a good question and it's a tough question and I want to take it kind of slowly. I think it is absolutely plausible that a good deal of regulation, particularly of occupational licensure regulation, comes from a desire to protect both the uh, person providing the service and the person getting the service from a problem. If people are worried about, say, the chemicals that um, hairdressers use when they they color hair. Um, there are concern. There are legitimate concerns um, that they hairdressers don't want to be exposed on a continual basis to carcinogenic chemicals, right? That might give them trouble with skin or lung or who knows what kind of cancers um, later on down the road. Similarly, consumers want to know that their hairdressers are not using. Uh, chemicals that might harm them when they get a service done, right? So there are absolutely legitimate concerns 
that can spur a lot of regulation in any occupation, in any kind of industry. Um, and I, it's important not to attribute um, all regulation to bad intent. I do think though, that a not inconsiderable amount, how's that for uh, a little bit of litotes there for my English professors who are listening, <laughs> that a not inconsiderable amount of regulation comes about because people have fought their way into an industry or groups have fought their way into an industry. They've established a comfortable uh, living for themselves. They've established a real toehold as a group and they want to make sure that people don't come up behind them and push them out by underpricing them, right? By innovating new procedures that might be faster, that might be cheaper, that might be better, that, you know, they want to stop that from happening. And so they get up into their position and then they turn around and bar the door after them with more regulation, more licensing requirements so that people cannot come in through the same routes that they came in, right? And that's a problem. Right. That's a very big problem. And we see it, you know, we see it very explicitly in some historical discussions about uh, women arguing for, for equal pay, um, which you would think would be a great thing to argue for. But all that saying is we're going to regulate the price that you can accept for your labor, um, which may not be the price that people are willing to pay right. uh, for your labor. So it's cutting you out of the labor market again. Again, I mean, and as you said, you, and you said it multiple multiple times, which is great. Like you know, which is that that says nothing about the intentions. They very well right. could be good intentions, like you said, e equal work for equal pay. It's it's presented on the surface as we should be paid the same as everyone else doing the same kind of work, et cetera, et cetera. But on the flip side, uh, costs and benefits are always part of the discussion. And and what you're also telling someone else who might not be on board with that idea or, or the idea that it should be regulated that no, sorry, you cannot contract with this person. Right. Right. And so, you know, I, I try not to assume bad faith um, on the part of people, but I, I do think it's, it's well worth always looking at, uh, you know, not only who benefits from this, but, but who loses um, from whatever regulation is the, uh, the French uh, economic journalist Bastia would have said, not just the seen, but the unseen. Right. And so, don't notice. And the unseen is often dispersed, right? It's it's spread. Yes. They they don't have their their PR firm or their or their speakers for them like a concentrated group of interests would, right? So if right. there's a benefit for a concentrated few, there could be an immense cost for for a dispersed many. Right. And that's why it's so hard for changes to take place about that kind of thing because you have the dispersed many, right? who don't have a lot of economic power, right? Who may not have a lot of uh, organizational capability, who in a lot of cases just don't have a lot of time, right? Activism might possibly be thought of as a sport for the rich in a lot of cases. You need a lot of time, you need a lot of time to do that sort of work, right? And so back to our turn of the century uh, feminists, right? And to our, our women getting, uh, getting recognized their right to vote in 1920, um, that was a movement driven by, in a lot of cases, very wealthy women who had right. a full staff at home to run the home and take care of the children and do all of the things while they're out um, 
working for political power for women. And I'm not, that's in no way to talk smack about how they're doing it, but that's what it requires, right? That's an, that's an assessment of what it was. That's a neutral right. statement. Tech has lowered the cost of that somewhat. We now see a lot of political organization taking place online, right? You still need access to uh, a computer terminal and to the internet, but you can often get that at your local public library or at schools and it's getting cheaper to access the web all of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of stuff is getting organized that way now. So the costs in terms of time and in terms of money um, and in terms of opportunity cost of what you have to give up in order to be involved in that kind of organizing and that kind of push for change um, have been lowered radically um, since I was a kid. And that's a really interesting point too, right? Because the higher the cost of access, that that means there's a there's a natural sorting mechanism, as you said, to the people who will be involved in having their voices heard and, and involved in activism. Now we have a situation where, where the costs of be having a platform just to speak out or organizing with people that are like-minded, as you said, they're, they're lower cost. There's more diversity of, of wants and needs and, and issues being raised, whether we're talking about labor regulation or not. So a lot of what we're seeing today, a lot of the friction between groups, et cetera, et cetera, may very well simply be because there are now more voices and on its own that's not really a bad thing you know as a lot of people like to throw that that these are a lot of people that are trying to like yearn for for a past i guess uh you know well it wasn't like this you know 40 years ago well maybe you just weren't hearing the voices right right? it it wasn't like it 40 years ago because you didn't have to listen and on that note actually i wanted to shifting gears a little bit but but still related i I wanted to throw something you and get your thoughts on something because this is some this is often like flipping statements people throw out there uh when it comes to again back to our discussion about economic freedom and women this is often happens with I, i find at least in my experience like business groups that may be all women and things like that some people like to throw it out there and say oh well it looks like the women like to discriminate too that's an all-women group over there. And I know, of course, there's positives and negatives to everything, but I just wanted your gen- general thoughts on that because this is something that often people turn around and, and say yeah. to, to women's groups and activism. I think that there's a very big difference between what I think of as discrimination, which would be not permitting somebody to have a job, right, or to participate fully in, say, the life of an office culture, right? Um, or even, you know, uh, the the guys at this office always go to the cigar bar for two hours at the end of the day on Friday. And we all know that's where the real information gets exchanged. Right. right? And the women aren't invited because it's not a chick thing, you know, whatever. Um, that seems like a problem. It would be equally problematic if the the power hitters in a company were all women and they they went. Uh, for manicures every Friday at the end of the day. And that's where the, the, the real power discussions were had. Uh, and the men were, you know, explicitly uninvited or simply made to be entirely unwelcome. That's, that's problematic. A side group, right, that you choose to associate with, where you choose to get together, where you might exchange information that seems important or support each other with particular struggles, Um, or help each other with particular issues because you are part of a group of business people who are also women or who are also recent immigrants or who are also members of a particular religion, right? That seems to me to be a very different kind of organization and a very different kind of question. There may be particular conversations that women in the business world want to have with one another and can best have with one another, right? 
doesn't necessarily have a thing to do with hiring or anything else. It just means they might need to, you know, well, what do you do when you're in the meeting and you gave the great idea? And then two minutes later, a guy says it and everyone applauds him. Right. What do you do? Right. It just happened to me for the 45th time this week. What do you do when that happens? Right. And maybe that's a conversation that just needs to be had and you need a space to have it or to practice having it before you go back into the culture that is your office. Right. And have the conversation there. Right. And I don't I don't see a problem with that. Um, I see that as very productive for all concerned. Maybe uh, women in business want to get together right now to talk about a lot of the reports that are coming out about COVID quarantine and the way that it is showing up the the unequal weight borne by working women uh, who are raising children, who are managing housework, um, and the way that COVID in particular has brought some of that out in very high relief. Maybe they want to talk about that. Seems like a good thing to talk about, right? Right, yeah. And even moving away from the gender discussion for a second to to, to round off this point before we move on is like, I, I personally have no business at the Canadian Farmers Association yeah. meeting when they're talking about stuff. I'm not going to say, well, why do you guys want to go have a separate meeting for that? Right. Well, that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like you, got, you guys talk about your farming stuff or there you guys talk about your steel mills, at your different right. associations. Everyone's happy, right? It's like when we add gender to the mix of the conversation, people sometimes don't apply the same logic. So you, you make an excellent point. Right. But if it's if it's a Canadian Small Business Persons Association meeting and the farmers are there, you want to be in on it, too. Right. Right. They shouldn't say nobody who works in tech is allowed. Nobody named Alex can attend this meeting. Right. right yeah. that's, that's a real problem. Right. And it's a, it's a very different thing. And I think it is it's a mistake to let people get away with sort of occluding the lines between those different. And just because of time, I'm going to move us away from that point. But again, I'd love to talk about that more. So, so I actually have some questions shifting gears again, uh, based on your review of the book called uh, called Roast Beef Medium. Uh, but before uh, I jump in. Uh, can you just let our listeners know what this book is about and why you find it so interesting? I love this book. Um, and I know your producer loves this book as well. So I'm glad we got a chance to talk to you. You probably have a big note saying, make Sarah talk about this. Um, Roast Beef Medium is the first in a series of three books written by Edna Ferber, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. She's probably best known for her novel, Giant, which was turned into a James Dean movie later on, and also for writing the book that became the musical Showboat. The uh, the stories that make up the the collection called Roast Beef Medium. It's somewhere between a novel and a and a set of connected short stories. Um, they're written in about 1911, 1913, so really early and right kind of at the heart of a lot of these things that we've been talking about today, um, and the. The stories are about a divorced working mother named Emma McChaney. And Emma McChaney works for a company that sells petticoats. And she travels. And she, so she's a traveling saleswoman for petticoats in the first years of the 20th century. It's all but unheard of. And she's divorced and she has a child. And she is the sole financial support of her son and herself. And these stories are wonderful because, first of all, Emma's just a great character. She's funny and she's sharp and she's, she takes no nonsense from anybody. But also because everything that 
Emma experiences in 1913 as she travels by train around the country with her giant uh, steamer case full of petticoat samples, right, are the exact same things that working women experience today. Uh, when I started working at Liberty Fund, and indeed up until very recently, I traveled a lot. I was on the road probably two weekends every month. Um, so I was constantly packing my suitcase, unpacking my suitcase, calling my children from far away, constantly feeling that um, that uh, pull that you do as a working woman where you feel like you owe your job everything and you owe your children everything and somebody is always getting shortchanged somewhere along the line. And Emma McChaney's stories deal with all of these things over and over again. Emma is on the road trying to get that contract, trying to make that big sale and thinking to herself, man, all I really want, I want to be at home in my kitchen, roasting a chicken and baking a pie. And I just, I wish I had that. And she thinks about it and she'll make up her mind to quit. And then that sale is right there and she's just got to go get it. And she always goes to get it. And she always realizes by the end of the story that in fact, it's her work and her dedication to her work that makes her a good mom and an interesting person and fulfills her uh, and allows her to do the stuff that she's best at, right? So they're great pick-me-ups for working women, right? And great stories for that. But they're also great little histories of what it's like to be a working woman. You briefly said there, and I had a note to ask you, is is, is that just because this was written decades ago doesn't mean it's not relevant to today or the, the female experience oh, today. Yeah, no, I, I you could sit next to Emma McChaney on a plane tomorrow. Well, if we were flying anywhere, but you could sit next to Emma McChaney on your next business trip. Right. Right. On a plane. She'd be right there. You'd be having the same conversations. Right. Um, just fascinating. And they're they're beautifully written. I am absolutely dying for somebody to pick it up and make uh, a television series. I think it would make a really interesting analog to things like um, Downton Abbey, right? Where, you know, women's work is very, very lower class and very, you know, very kind of pushed to the side, right? It's very interesting to see a woman's work presented in an early work of fiction like that as her passion and as the thing that really defines her. And as really, aside from her son, the primary love of her life. I guess it is often that we find that a lot of, let's say, history, a lot of real life is often contained in literature. When we go back to a time where certain professions like, for instance, professional historians may have been dominated by men. Literature and fiction can be a very interesting source of, although it is in its own way fiction, uh, it's sort of, as you said, an interesting time capsule for us to take seriously if we want to learn about a certain time and tone and attitude. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's fact. It's it's a particular kind of filtered fact. This takes mm -hmm. us right back to our earliest discussion. It may not tell us what was actually happening, but it can tell us a lot about what people thought was actually happening or what people wished was actually happening. Right. Now, there are some historical analogs to women like Emma McChaney. And if listeners don't know about Madam C.J. Walker from Indiana, who's one of the first, I think she might be the first self-made woman millionaire in the United States who had, we seem to be on hair care during this podcast for reasons I don't really understand, had a hugely successful home uh, line of home hair care products 
for uh, for the black community um, at the in the turn of the century in Indiana um, and for a self-made millionaire. People outside of the state don't necessarily know about her as much as they they, they might. But there's a relatively new um, Netflix series um, that has just came out come out about her very recently. So that's worth a look for for people who want uh, a historical uh, fact to go with the, the fictions of Emma McChaney. So for those listening, we have a, a bunch of Sarah Squire endorsement stamps across a bunch of different <laughs> things there. So we'll put them in the episode notes as well as uh, thank you for taking us through that. Um, so I'll just move on to a few other points here in the interest of time is winding down. We're on the, we're on the downward slide, but I want to get a few more points in. So uh, d- tying everything we've talked about all back together, um, you know, especially when it comes to economic freedom, some often say, well, yes, you know, the state has been used in a bad way before again against women. We understand this, but perhaps the solution is to make sure that the state now does the right things for women. So why would you ultimately discourage this idea? I, I know there's a lot of nuances in the short run and what can be done for people, but but in the long run, ultimately, why would you discourage the idea uh, of like the sort of keyhole solutions or using the state to, to help women directly and more talk about economic freedom in a broader sense? I got this out of your writing on this, that, that you know, it, it's a trap that we can sometimes fall into to think, OK, well, the state has one time taketh, now it should giveth. Why should we just talk about economic freedom for all and how that, of course, overlaps into women? Uh, you know, why why am I skeptical that a state that for decades, centuries, depending on what state you're talking about, depending on how how long run your your calculations are, has consistently grown in power, um, grown in its uh, intrusion into the lives of citizens, grown in uh, its ability to decide our decisions for us um, and to direct the courses of our lives. Why am I skeptical about handing that state more power? I mean, I'm skeptical about handing that state more power. Um, I am skeptical that anyone can decide things for me better than I can decide them for myself. Um, People may be able to help me, groups may be able to help me once I have made my own decisions, but I'm very skeptical that they can tell me what I ought to decide because they don't have the information that I have about me. And, you know, as uh, the economist, Hayek would remind us, even if they think they have the information, they don't have the information because I can't tell them all the information. I don't know everything. I can't say everything that I know. There's stuff right. that I know that I can't communicate. Um, so I'm just skeptical that it can be done in the first. Second of all, I'm familiar with public choice theory. I'm by no means an expert. Again, literature person, not economist. Um, don't write letters, folks. Uh, but I am familiar with public choice theory. And public choice theory reminds us that we cannot assume that people who are in public office are any better than people in the grocery store or people uh, arguing over whether or not we should be wearing masks on the street or arguing about whether we should open bars up or not, or any better than the people in a variety of cities who... uh, when bars were told they would have to close, we're trying to figure out 100,000 ways to work around those regulations just so they could drink with their friends, right? There is no reason to think of politicians in the aggregate or of any individual politician as being any better than the average schmo at the grocery store. 
it's a trap that we fall into because they've got publicists and they've got people to do their makeup before they go on stage and they always have good lighting and you know it's an easy trap to fall into but it's a trap right no that's an that's an excellent way to put that and i think uh thanks as you said even and again back to another thing we're talking about too even if the intentions are great and good and noble again like you're saying that that's you brought up a a bunch of excellent reasons as why not to trust people, men or women at, at the state level trying to say, okay, now we're going to help this group or that group or whatever. I, I guess another way to say it is that we should fear the, the man of system and the woman of system equally. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Abs- let me be clear. Um, I don't think that female politicians uh, or female government, female-led governments are any more to be trusted than male politicians or male-led governments. Right. I, I just, I, I don't think... I don't think that's the decisive difference that should make you trust or not trust someone or rely on or not rely on someone. And I think that's actually a great carryover into the last area of discussion I wanted to have today, which is, um, and and again, it's it's directly related to what you just said, like, you know, forget about man and woman for a sec. Let's talk a bit about class and, and especially the political one. So there is an argument that says, look, in order for us to be serious about getting rid of hierarchy, patriarchy and unjust power dynamics, we need to consider if not anarchy, at least anarchist thought and taking that a little more seriously. Like, for instance, even market anarchists who recognize the benefits of trade and business will note that until we work to eliminate power in all forms, including the state and large corporate power, the short run gains will just be short run. To add and to tie it off, I guess what I'm getting at, it's not like women anarchists are unheard of. And and some women anarchists have even said anarchy is basically necessarily feminism in a certain way as well. And again, even if you're not specifically an anarchist theorist, you may have definitely heard these types of arguments and not asking for a pointed answer and you to tell us what way society should be structured in the last five minutes by any means. That's not the, the point of this question. Oh, well, I mean, I was ready to go. Oh, okay. Sorry. But, yeah, no. <laughs> I have the answer. Right. No. <laughs> no, I just I just wanted to sort of give that sort of a- anarchist feminist sort of area yeah. a bit of a shout out for us to talk about that a bit. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's an important and much neglected uh, strain of, of feminist writing. And, I, you know, I have a, a, a large operating theory about this, which I will state very briefly, which is that when... Uh, the women's suffrage movement decided to put all of their eggs into the basket of getting women's right to vote recognized mm-hmm. and getting that acknowledgement from the state as the primary concern. The women's movement as a whole sort of began to turn to getting equal acknowledgement from the, the federal government of, of their standing and of their citizenship. And they lost, I think, sight of strains of feminist thought that were anarchist or that were uh, individualist um, in in some very important ways. And so uh, we don't hear about, say, Voltairine de Clare, who's a very important early feminist uh, anarchist. Um, uh, and, and I think that's, you know, that's that's a lack in our understanding of of our own history. Um, now, as for whether I think that that anarchy is the answer, right, that always depends on what what people mean when they say anarchy, right? I'm not a burn it all down anarchist, um, but I am cheerfully willing to go so far as to saying my version of anarchy might uh, amount to something like, if you tell me that the state ought to do something, ought to take over responsibility for doing something, the first thing you should have to do is show me that the private sector can't. Right. 
private private sphere broadly, right? Civil society, whatever the business, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of one of the really interesting things we're seeing in the the United States right now is uh, the the U.S. Postal Service has been, you know, in free fall for pretty much as long as I can remember, but it's gotten much much worse since the advent of email and and that sort of thing. It's it's losing money. It's just bleeding, um, bleeding dry. Um, And people are weirdly emotionally attached to the U.S. Postal Service. And I look at FedEx and I look at DHL and I look at any of a number of other alternative private carriers and think, I don't, you know, I don't see the problem. Prove to me that the private sector, business, social, business, civil societies, you say, prove to me that they, we can't do it ourselves. And then, okay, the government can do it. Maybe. Yeah. And then to tie, and it may be, yes. And to tie off the anarchist thought too, right. Is that, and a lot of these women anarchists ultimately did say along with other anarchists at the time that like, look, if you're going to ultimately want to use the levers and the power of the state to do something and you're claiming it should be done, you're the one at that point being a proponent of what is ultimately force. You carry the burden of justifying why the state should be used, not us to say in this conversation why the state shouldn't be used. That's not our burden. Right, and we could we could lean into that argument a whole lot harder as as a as a group of as a group of malcontents and 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 uh, difficult people. We could probably lean into that one harder. We argue at the note of malcontents and difficult people. I think that's an excellent area to actually tie off the episode. So, uh, as Sarah, in each episode, we want the guest. To have the last word. So we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why women should care about economic freedom? If you want to leave them with that one thing, that one takeaway, what is it? Women should care about economic freedom because it can elevate us out of a bad situation. It can give us the power to leave a bad situation and give us the power to control our own destinies. We'll leave it there. Sarah, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks a bunch. That was an absolute blast. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.